Hey there, hi and howdy everybody, it's your boy JRG coming at you live from downtown San Antonio for the Geekdom Underground podcast. We're excited to be back again, you already know how it is, every Thursday morning, 9.30, you know where we be. I'm here with uh, my good pal and co-host, Mr. Philip Hernandez, what's up? Hey everybody, what's going on? Good morning, my name is Philip Hernandez, I'm COO here at Geekdom and I'm excited for today's episode of Geekdom Underground. Today's a very special podcast episode. We have an amazing guest that you've probably seen around around Geekdom over the years. So, Mr. Charles Wooden himself, CEO of Geekdom. Yeah. Charles, welcome sir. Thank you, thank you for having me guys. Yeah, Appreciate absolutely, it. absolutely, it's our pleasure. So, um... So I know a lot about you. John knows a lot about you. We've enjoyed working with you over the years. But um, for everybody else, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from? Of course. So uh, I was born and raised in uh, Michigan. Uh, Grew up there from about the age of zero to 10. Uh, And then at the age of 10, I moved down to McAllen, Texas for two years. Uh, Spent two years in McAllen while my dad was setting up a uh, factory across the border in Reynosa. After that, we moved back to Michigan, spent the uh, high school, middle school years uh, back up there. Um, After graduating high school, shortly thereafter, I ended up joining the military, spent eight years in the military as a Korean linguist. So if you need me to say, I can do that all day long. (laughs) That was good. I've I've known you for a long time. I've never heard you say that. I've never heard you just pop right into that. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you should have said, yeah, I was going to correct you. (laughs) Dude. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, so I uh, did that for eight years. My last two years in the Air Force, I was an instructor up in San Angelo, Texas. Anybody who's been there before knows there's no reason to stay. So I immediately made my way down here to San Antonio, started going to school, UTSA, and then found my way over to good old Apple, which is uh, where my fateful journey to geekdom began. Yeah. Wow. It sounds like you've answered that question before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty used to it. But yes, it's 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 a fun ride. And I also think it's really random right i mean like that's not a typical journey to to land uh at geekdom in the first place let alone san antonio so i'm you know i like it i like the uniqueness yeah what part of michigan do you grow up in uh so it's a little town called the pier that's the place where i call home uh basically if you drew a line straight north from detroit and a a line straight east from flint where those two lines intersect is where the pier is okay all right awesome um what do you miss about michigan it's a good question. Um, I miss the seasons, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> it does. Um, so, I mean, you know, in Texas, there's summer almost all the time. Yeah. Um, and I miss that there's like this change, like where you can wake up in the morning and it's like 40 degrees, which seems a little cold. But then by the middle of the day, it's 70 and it just feels great. Uh, I love that time in Michigan. But the time that I gave up there and I'm happy to be down here is during the winter. Uh, because I don't think a lot of people who haven't really experienced winter understand just how dirty and disgusting and dreary it is. Like, it's just not an exciting time. There's that, like, picture in a lot of people's minds, which is mine, right? Like, it's just, like, beautiful winter wonderland. Yeah, everything's nice. That's not how it is? No. No, no, no. The sides, like, if you were to drive, the sides of the roads are, like, just, like, black or just dirty because the snow will get pushed off by the plows, and then it'll pile up. And these these snow mounds will get, like, I mean, really high, like two stories high. And and then they'll sit there for months. And then cars will drive by. And as cars are driving by, then the, their dirt gets up on there. And it just gets dirty and, and icy. It's just disgusting. It's just not fun. And then your car is also always dirty from the salt and stuff. So I don't miss that time at all. Yeah. They don't talk about that in 8 Mile. They really don't. No. In the book version, they do. Ah, not in the movie. See, though. that's where I <laughs> see <laughs> you got you got to go to the B sides of Eminem's tracks <laughs> to get that. So uh, there's, there's an alarm. Sorry, <laughs> there's an alarm. My bad, dude. Maybe. I'm sorry. That's why that's why we ask that you please put your phone on do not disturb. Oh, it is. But so I, <laughs> I appreciate that. So you said that uh, right after high school, shortly after high school, you joined the military. What led to that decision? Well, so funny story. Uh, right when I got out of the uh, out of uh, high school, I wasn't really sure what to do. Um, I um, ended up taking what's called the ASVAB test. Um, I did all right on the ASVAB test, um, and I had the opportunity to, to go into the Air Force at that time. 
literally the week that I took the ASVAB test, I started to date this, this one girl and, uh, you know, thought I was in love like any 18 year old kid does and, um, decided like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to stick around, you know, and I'm going to go to community college. And I hated it. Like it was not fun going to community college. I, I still felt like I was just wasting away. And, you know, about a year and a half into that, it was just like the relationship really wasn't, you know, the big relationship I thought it was going to be. And I wasn't very happy going to community college. And so, I explored the idea of, of joining the military, right? Uh, come to find out that your ASVAB score is good for two years. And I think the time that I went, I had like three weeks of that score still being qualified, right? And then the other thing was I wanted to, I you know, like there, whenever you join the military, there's a lot of different options on how you can join. You can pick a specific career field as long as you qualify because of the ASVAB test, or you can go in general. And if you go in general, you're going to end up in the crappiest job you can possibly imagine more than likely at least you should expect that right and I came in talked to my sister who was in the air force at the time and she had kind of suggested I try this thing called you know linguistics or whatever and I was like okay and I went down and um knowing that my ASPEP test was only good for a little bit longer I went down to take this test and the test I don't remember what it's called oh it's called the d-lab and when you take this test it has a made-up language in there and you have to listen to it and you have to try to figure out and understand like what they're trying to say, you know, verbal, like audio, and then also written and you're going through and I'm just, I think I failed the heck out of this thing. Right. <laughs> and it's me and only two other people that are taking this test at that time. Right. We finished the test. I am convinced I I'm done. One of the guys got up and left halfway through. So we know he's done, but he's still stuck <laughs> around. And then there was this other girl in there and I was talking to the girl and she was just like, oh yeah, the, the language was very much like German. So I, I know, you know I'm, I'm good. And I'm like, okay, cool. And we're sitting in this like waiting area, waiting to find out what our test results are. And in the front, there's like one of those old style um, flat screen TVs, you know, you could see reflections on almost no matter where you're sitting. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there and right behind me is where the Air Force recruiters are. And so they call her first. She gets up. She walks up by the door. And I can watch in the in the reflection. She gets to the door. They don't even let her in the door. They're just like, yep, yeah, thank you, bye. And she leaves. And I'm just like, oh, if she didn't make it, I definitely did not make it. Call me up. I walk up in there. They let me in the door. And then the guy's just like, congrats, you you passed. You're, you qualified to, you know, do whatever. You got this score. And I was just like, wait, you're joking, right? And he's just like, no, seriously, you did great. And I was just like, what? And anyways, blown away. And then at that point, I knew that that was the, the job that I was going to take. And two weeks later, jumped on a plane down here to good old San Antonio, Texas, and started my um, my journey. Dang, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah when, you know, uh, somebody who I, I don't have any military background, and my family wasn't in the military, so when I think of Air Force, I think that, like, you're flying in planes. But when you're telling me that you were a linguist in the Air Force, it sounds like that job was much different. So aside from you jumping in a plane – to come to San Antonio to get trained up. Did you spend a lot of time in planes? I did, but not everybody who did my job did. So, <clears throat> excuse me, one sec. <clears throat> there were a lot of people. So my job split into two career fields at that time. There was an, a ground linguist job and there was an airborne linguist job. And majority of the people that went through were ground linguists. And so specifically in Korean, um, I went through school. We started class with, I think it was about a hundred people, right? We started class in Monterey, California, um, with a hundred people and Korean is one of the hardest languages to learn there. And we graduated with about 45 of us. So less than half of the class made it through. Right. But of those 45, there were about 40 of them were ground linguists and the other five were airborne. And I just happened to be one of the airborne ones. And, um, so yeah, so my journey, you come here, you do basic training. And um, when you're in basic training, it's really funny because on around the fifth week or so, they bring you into this room and then they ask you, hey, you're a linguist. So what languages do you want to learn? Write five languages that you want to learn on here. And then you'll, you'll we'll pick one of them. I did not write Korean anywhere on there. <laughs> and yet I did have like Japanese or something. So I think that's how they justified like, oh, yeah, well, we'll teach you Korean instead. It's like, oh, awesome. Cool. And so, uh, yeah, so you graduate basic training and then you go to Monterey, California. It is beautiful out there, like just dramatically beautiful. Um, spent two years there. Uh, it's a total of 63, you know, straight weeks of language training, but there's breaks in between. Um, and so, yeah, over about two years and then, um, yeah, finished, um, barely. Like I didn't, I wasn't great, but I, I, I got through. Um, and then you come to San Angelo, Texas, which is where you, where you learn the top secret components of what you do. Um, and I spent six months in San Angelo after that, two weeks down here in San Antonio, 
after that, then I spent two or it's about a month or two in um, Spokane, Washington, where you do SEER training, which is where you learn how to survive in case your airplane goes down. And then after that, straight training in Omaha, Nebraska for a couple of years. And then, well, training was about six months and then uh, spent some time there, did some deployments uh, to Japan, did some deployments to the Middle East. Um, so yeah, did all sorts of different things. So you mentioned top secrets. Tell us about those secrets. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm totally joking. <laughs> well, actually. <laughs> Just mute him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so sense. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. That sounds like a, a ton of training. Um, so you were in the Air Force for eight years. Were you in training that whole time? Like, did you have to continue learning? Or once you finished, then were you uh, mainly doing your job? Yeah, I think like, you know, majority of, I'm assuming this, uh, obviously, but I think most positions, you're kind of always learning as you go, right? But for us, it was very front heavy. So about the first two years, it was just nonstop, right? Um, once you get in, though, you have to maintain your language capabilities. And your language capabilities are not only in what the job requires, which is where those secrets come in, but also where your capabilities are to read, write, and, and speak, and so there would be these routine trainings that you go to like once every couple of years and depending on how your scores would go, cause you'd have to test every single year in order to verify where your standing was in the language training. And, um, and so depending on how your scores were, you'd get sent more often. And so I think by the time I made it to, um, to Omaha, I had gotten an opportunity to go to training. So I, I went to Omaha in about six months in, I had finished my, my, like my job, I can fly now. I'm, I'm good to go. And then I was like, okay, well now go relearn the language a little bit, you know, catch back up. And I was like, cool. So did that came back. And then, you know, I think by the time I made it to San Angelo, so about maybe it was four years later, no. Yeah. Four years later, then I, I learned, uh, I went again to more training. So it was like every two to four years you'd, you'd learn more. So did you retain any of that knowledge other than like the couple of bars that you spit when we first started? <laughs> I mean, I can, if you, like, if, if we had a whiteboard here, I could write stuff for you. Um, if there was Korean in front of me, I could read it. Now, the issue that I have is vocabulary. So because I don't speak it very often, my vocabulary is very, very limited. And I remember, like, really weird things like leukemia. For some reason, I remember that word. But, like, other words are just completely escaped from me. So, like, if I wanted to try to say podcast or podcast studio outside of it probably just being podcast studio because they have a lot of loan words um i don't know have any idea where to even think about where that starts you well know? like yeah. if you were to visit or like let's say you would like you know end up in korea you could survive I, i'm pretty sure i could yeah i mean like what i all i would need to do to be honest with you if, is if i knew like we were all jumping on an airplane to korea today i would either buy or just go onto a website and download a bunch of vocabulary words and on the airplane ride there, I would be able to get my vocabulary back to like a workable way. Like I still remember all the rules. I still remember all the grammar, all those things, but it's just the vocabulary that really sucks. Yeah. And so as long as I had some kind of frame of reference or a little bit of time to spin back up, I think I'd be fine. Hmm. Good to know. Yeah. So when are we going? Did yeah. you <laughs> I was like, tune in next week? Did you enjoy your time in the military? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I mean, I, I'll tell you that you never, f you in most jobs that I've had since, you don't have that level of responsibility that they trust you in at the age of 20 years old. Like, it's just crazy to think that you're on a couple million dollar, like a double digit million dollar aircraft. And they're, you know, basically trusting you to tell people on the ground that there are enemies or there are, there are things that they need to look out for. Like that's a crazy amount of responsibility, you know? And Specifically, when I was in the Middle East, my job, obviously, there's no Korean in the Middle East. And so my job was radio communications. And so, like, that was a pretty, um, pretty, um, pretty stressful role. It was, you know, a lot of responsibility, but also that's where you also feel the rewards because you can hear the, the conversations back and, you know, like the thanking of, of what you're able to offer and stuff like that. So it was it was a very powerful position to, to be in. And then, you know, when you get out, you're kind of like what do I do now? You know, yeah. because what has that level of responsibility and, and it's, it's hard to find that. Yeah. That's awesome. Did you, uh, so I, I, I feel like I could speak for the team and the community in saying that you're a great leader here. Did you, um, any memorable leadership skills that you picked up when you were in the military? Well, first, thank you for that. I mean, uh, 
I think I'm just lucky enough to have such an amazing team that it makes it really easy. But um, I think when I think back to the military, I think as many positive um, leadership examples that I saw, I saw equally as many negative ones. And I think that you, as long as you bring into your mind that, you know, you take bad examples and you learn from them, um, you can learn just as much from them as you can from the, from the good ones. And so just picking out what those are and realizing how you like to be talked to, um, is typically how other people want to be talked to, you know, and thinking about how, um, a leader takes the charge, a leader is there next to you while they're doing it. I'll give you, I'll give you one really good example. Um, in, in my job, um, transcribing is a huge component of what we do and, or it was what I did. And, um, (coughs) sorry. And, um, when we were, um, one of the times I was deployed to Japan, um, we, one, one of the guys that was there, he was a ground linguist. And there was always this like, um, thought that ground linguists were way better than airborne linguists because airborne linguists had all these other responsibilities to do. They're going off to the Middle East. They're not training in their typical world as often as the ground linguists are. And so when we got to Japan, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to train you guys up. I'm going to show you what it's all about. And so we would spend days just, you know, listening and transcribing and just like, it was, it was pretty brutal at that time. Right. And we were like thinking like, why is this necessary? You know, but like he was right there next to us every single day, showing us how to do it, helping us out, making sure that we understood. And he was doing it himself too. Like he was keeping up his own skills. And when I think back to like leadership, that's the example of leadership that I always wanted to be was somebody who like, like, listen, this is not fun. I get that, but it is something we need to do because it's important because there's a time when we're in the plane that this is needed. Um, and you're going to want to know it. And not only that, but I also need to know it. So let me, let me prove to you that we're right. We're in this together. And and it, it was a very powerful example. And, um, I always think about him. His name was Sergeant Price or Prince and, uh, yeah, he was a, he was a great leader. Yeah. Shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, wherever you're at. <laughs> in the chat maybe. Hey. Um <laughs> but uh what in your opinion um I think I think you've had some great leadership examples just from what we've talked about in the military. Um and I know you've had others in the more corporate world. Um what in your opinion makes a good leader? Um I mean, I think I think somebody who listens, I think is number one, because, um, a leader needs to understand the situation before making decisions, right? Because a leader's job in most cases is to, is to make decisions for the team or whoever they're responsible for. And the only way to really do that effectively is to understand the situation as well as you possibly can. And the way that you do that is to listen to the input that you have, whether that be from your team, whether that be from outside sources, um, and, and figuring that out before making your decision, and then also explaining why you're making that decision to your team. I think that those two components uh, are, are key to being a good leader because if you've listened to everything that's out there and you still determine that this is the right answer and you can explain why it's the right answer, then people will follow you. Uh, and if they don't, then they can opt out at that point, right? But they have the reasons, they have the understanding, and they they should, you know, hopefully they see the amount of work that you put in to listen, that they trust your your decision. Right on. Yeah, thanks. Um, the So you, you did the military, or you did the Air Force, um, and I know at some point there was a transition where you did a lot of classroom training, but then you were on the other side of the podium. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So for me, you know, leaving the military, I think there's a lot of people that you may talk to that have transitioned out of the military who talk about the transition being a very difficult time. And it's really hard to put your finger on why it's difficult. For me, the reason that at least I felt was this dramatic jump. Like you just said, um, in 2010, I was an instructor. I was teaching students. You know, I would have a classroom of 30 students or so at a time. And I was the person that they looked up to. And then within six months or so, I was the person sitting in a classroom in UTSA with a bunch of other people who are much younger than me listening to somebody else telling me what we need to learn. And there was no issue with learning. That was that was great. I think for me, it was a lack of like a mission, you know, at that time to really like kind of move towards. And then it was also the lack of the camaraderie that I had with the people that I used to be next to, you know, like if we were on a plane, I knew everybody who was next to me and we all knew like what we were doing and we all knew why we were there. Right. Um, when you're in a classroom, or at least for me, when I was in my classrooms, you've got all these people who 
I can barely relate to because they just walked out of high school a few days ago. And I'm now coming off of just teaching kids that they were, that were that age and, you know, sitting there, it was just really difficult for me. And, and what ended up really unlocking the, um, the, or like kind of putting me back on track at least is what I felt was when I found a part-time job at Apple, honestly, it was just finding something. And, you know, when I started there, it was really this, this key piece of just fixing somebody's problems. I think I've always loved fixing somebody's problems. And, um, and when I started at Apple, they gave me the job of like the person who somebody comes in and they're like, my iPhone doesn't work. And it was just like, Oh, I can help you with that. And then when you solve it, you get this little reward. It was, it was, it was good. Right. And then I kind of climbed that ladder and became uh, a genius. So now I'm sitting up there, you know, talk to somebody about the computer, fix their computer. Okay. It's a little bit bigger of a reward, but where I found the most reward was when I started to do business consulting with Apple, uh, where we were talking to businesses of varying size, you know, all the way up to Rackspace, all the way down to a mom and pop shop. Right. And when they come in and they're saying, Hey, we need to manage these thousands of devices we have and we don't know how, or, we need to be able to take um, credit card payments, um, you know, from people. We haven't been able to do that before. We need to set up like an online store for us to be able to solve those problems is now affecting thousands of people, you know, handful of people, but all their customers as well. That was like the most rewarding thing that I could have. And that's really what I fell in love with and why, um, yeah, I, I never thought that I would leave that job because it was so rewarding and what we were, what we were capable of doing. I also think that Apple in its own way has its own mission, right? And yeah. they they do a really good job of making you feel like you're making a difference, right? And I think that in a lot of cases you are, whether it's the thousand iPads for Rackspace or the mom and pop shop, something like it's, it's awesome. And a lot of those smaller businesses are like intimidated by tech. Yeah. I don't know like what's going to happen. Is this person just going to sell me something that I don't know how to use? Yep. But it's like, no, I'm here to help you. Like whether you buy it or not, I'm, I'm happy to help you. So um, not a lot of people know, or actually maybe a lot of people do know that's where we first met was at yep. Apple. So have a little bit of background there. Yeah. Um, I'll ask them, I'll ask you to tell them the first time we met here in a minute. Um, but I do want to draw a quick connection to what you said, you know, I mean, working at Apple, that was a company that when I was in the military, I really looked up to, you know, I was one of the people who bought the first iPhone. It was, it was a company that was inspiring, you know? And kind of drawing the connection to uh, my current boss being Graham, he has this, you know, I guess somewhat famous saying where he says everybody wants to be, you know, um, a, valued a member. valued member of a winning team on an inspiring mission. And there was no doubt that working at Apple, that that was an inspiring mission because of what the company was, like how much it had innovated throughout the years, you know, and then I felt like specifically when I was in the business team, I felt like I was on a winning team. We were constantly tracking our numbers. We were making sure that we were doing what was right, that we were helping out our customers and that we were also hitting the revenue numbers that we were asked to hit. And then I, you know, like, and I felt valued, you know, like all those three things were fulfilled at that job at that time. And that's why when I look back, I'm like, man, like I never would have, uh, you know, I never would have imagined at that time how amazing geekdom the opportunity that geekdom was, was I just couldn't see it until I saw it, you know? And then when, and then when I walked in the door is when, is when it hit me. So. What, um, so you said that I want to go back a little bit before we jump too far ahead, but you said that, um, that working with Apple is very rewarding and you, you talked about those like metaphorical rewards that you would get. And I feel like, that you would like collect those and you were chasing those. Are there any other things in your life that, you know, you chase after? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. I think there are always those little rewards, you know, whether they're, they're in that or, you know, thinking about like video games or something like that, that I would, that I would play. There's always something there that I'm chasing, you know, and I, it's funny because we do um, strength finders, you know, and for me, I figured competition has to be in my top five, right? But it's not. It's like I think it's like number nine or six, maybe. Yeah. But it's it, you know it's just outside, but it's in my top ten, you know. So it's mm -hmm. definitely represented. But it's weird because I always feel like I'm competing against myself. Like I think you know when I think about what competition means, I think that it typically means that you want to like beat the other person, mm -hmm. and that's not what motivates me. What motivates me is doing better than what I could have done a minute ago or what I could have done a year ago. And so I've always 
battled myself. And you can see that when you play video games with me, or you can see that when you play ping pong with me, I don't get mad because John won the game or that John beat me at a point. (laughs) I get mad because I could have returned that better, or I could have, I saw the spin that he put on it. I could have done that. Or, you know, if we're in a a video game, I could have, I could have killed those guys. I could have done this, you know, like it's something that I'm battling with myself. And it's something that when I realized kind of those two things, which is, you know, one being something that I get really rewarded by fixing issues. uh, And then number two being something that I always want to do better at at whatever I'm trying to accomplish. um, That's kind of like those little rewards that I would get. Did you ever play sports? Uh, I did. When I was in middle school, I played um, basketball. Uh, Younger than that, I played football, baseball when I was in high school. But I just, um, I think because of the moves that I went through at the time, like I didn't have that camaraderie that I felt like a lot of the team members had, you know, because specifically when I moved to Texas, it was like right at the beginning of middle school. So I went to like sixth and seventh grade uh, here in McAllen. And I tried out for football down here, but football in Texas, which I'm sure a lot of people know, is a completely different thing than yeah. it is in Michigan, right? Yeah. And and it is a serious thing. And I just was not ready for that type of like, just I don't know, like how to explain pressure. It. Yeah, pressure. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I tried out like I think it was my sixth grade or whatever, and I was just like, yeah, this is not for me. And so then I backed out. But that's when I got into basketball, and then I was like, okay, this is this is fun. It didn't have the same kind of attention that football had down here. Uh, made some friends, you know, I, I love playing uh, basketball. I, I would typically play like a forward or, a, you know, power guard, something like that. At the time I was a little bit shorter. Um, and then, and then when I moved back up to Michigan though, um, I had no interest at football at that time because I'd kind of like lost it with my experience down here. Um, when I went to go to the basketball team there, like everybody already knew everybody and it was already a set team. Cause I was coming in at eighth grade, and that seventh grade team was already the eighth grade team. It was just, it didn't feel like I fit in. And then when I made it to high school, I had a friend who was playing baseball and that's what led me into baseball. And that was really the, one of the only reasons I got into that. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of my experience with sports. I never really had that one sport that I was super excited about. But I, when I watch sports though, I'm super um, engaged. You know, you talk about um, like all of these like drastic changes, like Michigan to South Texas, then California, then I think you said, where did you say? Omaha. Omaha, and then Japan, Middle East, like all these different places. And um, it's not like you just spent a little bit of time at each one of these places. Um, But then moving forward from like, from geographical, there's also just these like culture shocks, even in like just your work, even like the, the, places you work, workflow, like going from military to Apple store to geekdom. That's a lot of like shocks to your system. So how did you cope or adapt, especially if like camaraderie is something that was so important to you? I mean, I think that that was, that's one of the answers is finding, you know, people to, um, to be close with in each one of those places. Like I think each one of those examples that you gave I could give you an example of somebody that I attached myself to and that I became close with at those things. And they were, you know, friends, they were really close friends for periods of time that I experienced those shocks, as you put it. Um, And, you know, so I think about how close I came with my team at Apple. Like that was, it was not only because of my detachment from the military and not having that connection anymore, but it was also like, these are the people that we're winning with, you know, this is, this is the team. And then when I came here, it was the same thing. You know, I came here and and John was here and the rest of the team. And I became like, I want to be a part of the team. I don't want to, you know, exist outside of the team, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, So you also talk about like, it seems like everything you've done, you've really, really liked. Like you're in the Air Force, you really liked what you did, you know. And then um, when you're at Apple, you really liked what you did. And I understand why... um, you left the Air Force, your contract was up. I mean, you had an end date that you knew about. Uh, what was your, what made you decide to leave Apple? Yeah, so the story of how I left Apple is kind of funny. So um, <clears throat> at the time, um, so I got hired at Apple. Um, there was two people, um, a guy named Brian and a guy named David, who were the managers of Apple at that time. Um, they hired me. Um, you know, I, I fell in love with, with the company. It was, it was great. 
Um, as time went on, David moved on and he happened to land here in the position that you're in now as COO. And, um, you know, I knew about it kind of outside of what I was doing, but I didn't, it didn't, wasn't something that affected me at the time. Um, I was working at Apple, but there was this kind of funny anecdotal thing that would happen where David would pop into the store every once in a while and everybody would kind of chuckle because we know that he's looking for the next John to hire from, <laughs> from Apple and bring over there and stuff. Because I think he was really just trying to find, um, you know, some people who were looking for great opportunities and, and, you know, to tell them that geekdom's hiring, that this is a great place to kind of leave your mark and stuff. And well, one day, fateful day, he came into the space and, um, somebody, you know, I, I worked in the very, very back of the store, so I didn't see what happened on the floor all that often, but somebody on the radio said, Oh, David's here. And it was just like, okay, well, I'm going to go say hi to him. And I did. And he kind of like, you know, talked to me for a little bit longer than he used to. And I was just like, okay, I'll bet you money. He's going to, he's going to reach out to me. I, I guarantee it <laughs> later that night. Sure as heck on my phone, I get a Facebook message from David and he's like, Hey, have you ever checked out geekdom? I was like, well, I went to the event center once, but you know, I hadn't really been into the space. And he's just like, you should come down. How about you come down this, you know, this next week or whatever. And I was like, okay. And I, I did it because of, you know, who David was to me, you know, he was the person who hired me. I owed it to him to at least come down and check out what, what he was, what he was talking about. And so I, uh, I came down and, and when I walked through the door, the, the story that I tell is I was about 99% sure that no matter what we were going to talk about, this was not where I wanted to be. And it was just because I had no idea what was happening in the Rand building in downtown San Antonio, you know? And uh, I was so happy at Apple. It just was a, it was a, not even a possibility. There's always a possibility, which is why the 1%, but it just didn't seem likely. So I walked through the door, you know, he gives me the dog and pony show. Uh, the person who I ended up eventually replacing, her name was Crystal. She walked me around, showed me around the space, gave me the, you know, the, the tour and, um, told me all the stories and it was like, cool. I ran into a couple of the companies that I had helped out at Apple too, which was, which was also kind of cool just to see him. And then we come downstairs, the sixth floor, uh, go into an office. And then I didn't realize this, but it was going to be an interview. And so I sit down and across from me is Dax Moreno and, and Crystal and David, and they just, just kind of jump in. So tell me a little bit about yourself, you know, and just do the, do the typical thing. Well, as I'm telling this story, uh, um, it's actually kind of funny because, uh, I think David and I's relationship was a little bit like I kept relating to things that him and I had experienced together. And Dax did this thing, which now that I look back at it is just kind of laughable, but he was just like, Hey David, would you mind, uh, you know, just letting us, letting us chat with him and, and ask David to leave the room. You know, and this is the COO of geekdom and <laughs> basically just got kicked out by the programs director at the time. Right. Well, he does. And, and then you could tell that the kind of the, the mood in the room changed a little bit. And, and, you know, I started asking questions and, and Dax, finally like kind of alluded to me what geekdom was all about. And and I was not aware of what Graham's overall mission for downtown was or really who Graham was at the time, to be honest with you. And when he illuminated that for me, it, um, it, it hit one string really in particular that I had completely forgotten about, which was where I grew up. And, and, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, you know, I grew up really close to Detroit and Flint um, and, and when you join the military, those the cities that you grew up next to or the, the places where you're from become identity components of what you are. And just as an explanation of you who don't know, like watch Forrest Gump and how many people are named Tex or Dallas or whatever, you know, like everything is related to where you're from. Right. And so for me in the military with Detroit being a part of your label, you get the eight mile jokes, you get the um, you get the, uh, you know, Murder. You'd heard him before. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the murder capital of the world jokes, you know, like it's, it's a bankrupt city. Like all these things are things that are happening with Detroit as I'm going through the military. And those are things that are a part of my identity. And those are things that I wish like, you know, I could have done something about, but I, you know, I couldn't. And here I am sitting in a room talking to somebody uh, who is on this very inspiring mission of trying to build San Antonio and, and they're talking to me that they want me here. And I'm like, what? And like, I have the opportunity, the place where I have my kids now, where I've called home for the last six years, a place that I could potentially be a part of changing the narrative of or building up. Hell yeah. Like that's something I have to do. Right. And so I walked out that door, 99% sure that this was where I needed to go and 1% that there was any other option out there. And I remember too, you know, credit where credit's due. I went back that day and, you know, I went and I saw my boss and, um, 
me being who I am, I told my boss that I was going down there in the first place. And I told him that, that we chatted and, and he was just like, when I came back, he's like, so how did it go? And, and I was just, I told him and, and he was just like, he's like, you need to go back. And I'm like, what do you mean I need to go back? And he's just like, he's well, the person that you're potentially, you know, they're thinking you might be replaced is going to be leaving as she's leaving that Friday. And I'd come on a Tuesday or something. He's like, you need to go back and, and see what it's like before she leaves. And I was just like, okay. So I came back for a half day on Thursday and then got to see what her day to day looked like. And then I, I, I sat down again for like a five minute conversation with Dax. And that was when I was, it was done. It was a hundred percent at that time. I went back, put on my two week notice. Um, and then came over here. Dang story. That's, That's a story, man. It's the origin story of, of Charles Wooden himself, man, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a great story though. And I love it. And, um, and I can definitely see the connection from, you know, the cities that, that you grew up around and now having part in here and you've had great success. So let's talk about that. Like you being here at geekdom. Um, I think, you know, even though I've known you for years, I still learn more and more about you the, you know, the closer that we get and, just in here, understanding that, you know, that was one of the main drivers is you were, for lack of a better term, like helpless watching these other cities turn into what they turned into. And here you had an opportunity to do something about it. What? And, and I think that that's incredible, too, how like, you know, something that you know that you need is that camaraderie. And I feel like also community. How does that feel to have such an impact on building not only the city of San Antonio, but building the community down here? Yeah, I mean, it's funny when you say that. I guess that there's a naivety that I live in where I don't I don't I don't feel like I'm the one assisting and building it. I just feel like I'm a part of it, you know, but I realize the role that geekdom's played in it. And I realize that I that I sit at the, the head of that table trying to lead it and, and the responsibility that that comes with. Um, it's, it's very scary. It's stressful. You know, it's something that when, when you think about, you just, you think about what inspired me to be here and you look around and you find out what inspired others, you know, you listen to what, to why they're here. And then you take that in and you think about, okay, that's why they're here. And, and how does this, you know, entity of geekdom, continue to inspire individuals like that or, 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 you know, other people to, to jump on board and to get, get behind this building San Antonio, you know, mantra. And, and I think for me, that's, that's kind of where it all started was just sitting there and listening to everybody's, you know, take and why they were here and what brought them in. And then, and then really just trying to then say, okay, what's next. And then, and then setting out like, you know, if, and when I have the opportunity, like, where do I want this to go? And, and I, I make this kind of, funny analogy, but I got this, you know, this feeling that, um, when Graham created this overall, like crazy idea of, of changing downtown, it was like, he was, you know, somewhere, um, you know, across the ocean and he had, uh, you know, s standing there with some people who were about to jump on a ship and said, okay, this is, this is where we need to go. We need to go that way. And that's about as clear as it was, you know, it's like, we're going to go find the new world. And then here I am stepping on to the ship. I've been on the ship for a little bit, a couple of years. And then it, there was opportunity for me to step up and, you know, you know, take the wheel. And then it was just like, okay, well, where are we, where are we going? And it's just like, well, that's a great question. Yeah. You know, where are we going? We're hoping you'd tell us. Yeah. And so, and so then it's like, it was, it was really doing that, listening to the community, talking to people, understanding kind of, you know, what the overall original mission was, understanding why people are here and what they're trying to accomplish and then plotting that course and then saying, okay, this is where we're going, you know, and then finding the team that helps you make that, the make that. So, <laughs> and that's kind of where, where, where we kind of all intersected and, and where we find ourselves today, you know? So, yeah. So all of this has been like a, a, a fairly positive story. The origin story of Charles Wooden coming to be uh -oh. CEO of Geekdom. And, you know, as we all know, like you and I, we became friends, you know, professionally um, when I was over at Code Up and you were over here and we would process issues. And that's difficult in itself, becoming the CEO. And, you know, you have all these ideas, but then of, of where we should go. But then when you have your hands on the steering wheel, it's different. There's yep. a lot more pressure. It's just different. 
So let's go back to March 23rd, 2020. You got that. <laughs> that was uh, that was my first day was. at Geekdom. Um, and it was the first Monday that I think in Geekdom's history that Geekdom was completely shut down. Yep. Just closed. Um, you had just hired me. And I was coming in for that day. I think I came in around like 8.30. And you had to have gotten there before me because when I got here, you were sitting in an established position. How did it feel walking into Geekdom that day? I mean, there's a lot that 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 question asks because there's a lot of things that, you know, I would have to explain to understand how impactful that day is. So in context is one of my number one strengths. So just bear with me while I, while I give some context here. So, you know, I think, I think back to our relationship, right. And, and where, where that all started and how I knew that you were the guy that I needed, right. Because, uh, geekdom to your point, I was, I had these ideas, but I didn't have somebody next to me. I didn't have the first mate to help me kind of lead it forward. You know, my, my previous, uh, VP of ops had left, I think in uh, January of that year, or maybe it was, maybe it was December or something like that. And so like, um, I was, I was, I didn't have that. I had a team, I had some amazing team members, you know, but we needed, we needed some leadership. We needed some additional leadership. We needed some execution. And, and, you know, you and I had kind of courted or I'd courted you from probably like August of 2019, to be completely honest with you. And I was thinking about that on my drive down here, the, the meeting that the three of us had had, um, and then, and then thinking to January where you and I started really having that conversation and then February where you found out what my intentions were. And then, uh, you know, the end of February when I asked you to marry me and then, uh, <laughs> you said, sure, but wait, you know, wait a month. And I was like, fine, I'll wait. <laughs> and I did. And in between the period where you said yes. And the period where you joined the pandemic became a reality, you know, and I, I think back to the point in late February where you finally agreed and, um, and then I think about how I, like, I knew that there was this thing called the coronavirus in February, late February of 2020. Right. Uh, but I, I was so naive and I was just like, yeah, dude, it's nothing. And then, you know, to think about, I think it was like March 8th or something like that, where I was sitting out in front of Rosella's and I was having a, I was having a beer with over the friend and we were talking and that was when I found out that they closed, um, South by Southwest. And it was just like, Oh man okay, this is, this is real now. That day I started to realize that things, you know, I had to start prepping some things. And so, you know, prepping the idea of closing down was hard enough, but I was, I was prepping for it. And by March 18th, we closed down. So March 17th, I sent out the email, everything like that. March 18th, we were, we were closed for the first time ever. And all this is happening still with this idea that like, Oh yeah, Philip's going to start. Philip's going to start. And then I walk in that Monday morning, you know, and I walk in that Monday morning as well. Now you're thinking, putting yourself in the role of a CEO, you're walking in to a business that makes its money by having people in the space, right? Into a space that's completely empty because it can't have people in it, which means it's not getting revenue at that time as well. And here I am welcoming, welcoming a new person on board. And I'm, you know, I'm honestly, I have to contemplate at that point making cuts. Like I have to, right. And I have to, I have to go through these scenarios of, of, of what does the team look like in this new world that we're in. Right. And so the thing that I didn't realize that Monday when you walked through that door is how you jumped into that role right away. And I, you know, I think we did the typical onboarding that existed at that time, which I know is a laugh of what we have now laughable, but, uh, right after that, you and I went into a room and I think I, I let you, I let you know what I had to do. And, um, and then you just were just like, okay, let's work this out. And it was right from there. We did what we had to do. Um, the next day, I, I, I had to make some unfortunate cuts. Um, but I think that, you know, thinking about where we are today and the things that we weathered throughout the storm of the pandemic and stuff like that, I feel like we made the right decisions at the right time. Um, yeah. And right there next to me the whole time, man. Yeah, that was a, that was a lot. Um, I think that what helped all of us uh, get through that was a lot of your leadership and a lot of your bringing in the importance of camaraderie around that time. I mean, there was literally a time where I know all three of us were in the space 
singing we're all in this together from <laughs> high, school high school musical, musical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> because it yeah it was a weird time and and um it, one you don't really see geekdom that empty unless you show up at like 1 a.m and but even still you might run into at least another person yep. but two like it was also like like i feel like we it was like um exclamated by like all the lights were off yep. too. Like I think the AC was kind of not really working <laughs> as well too. So it was just it was just it was a it weird was a ghost town. It was it was a ghost town and just then, downtown in general. Dude, yeah, and then, that's the other thing. Then you the walk roads, out. Yeah, you yeah. walk outside and it's no better. Like I mean, I remember being on the phone <laughs> with my wife and like telling her like, "Hey, I'm walking down Houston Street. Like not on the sidewalk." I'm walking in the middle of Houston Street. You took some photos. <laughs> I took photos, yeah, of, of that, because it was just, what a crazy time. Um, so we had some milestones throughout that time that um, where we, you know, when I look back to it, where we thought that, like, okay, if we can just get to May or if we can just get to June, you know, and it was literally, I mean, we had this system EOS where we're living in a 90 day world and we had to modify it to live in a 30 day world. And even 30 days seem like well, an eternity. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen in four weeks, you know? So when you, uh, when you think about that time, what do you think got us through that? I, I mean, honestly, I think it was the team, you know, and it was, it was the bonds that the team had built and it was, it was that that really kept us going. You know, it was this belief that we still had a mission, right? Because I think at that time, the mission could not have been less clear. And not only because of the world that we were in, but also because, like, I had brought you in specifically at that time to help us reshape what the mission is. You know, it was. And where we were heading. And I had these ideas in my head, but they were not brought down to, you know, paper. They weren't brought to the team yet, you know, but the team looked at, you know, you and me and, and, you know, the other people that had been there like John. And, and I think that they believe that like, this is, this is, this is a good team. This is, this is a team that matters. And there are members that are, that are out there that are not in the space right now because they can't be, but that still need engagement that are still seeking the resources that we have. And so they immediately, like the team immediately picked up and said, okay, well, where do we meet our members if we can't meet them physically? We meet them virtually. And we shifted to that, you know, ran into some hiccups with that, but we, but we figured it out, you know, we embraced the world that we lived in. Um, you know, we, we kept the space open a couple hours a day so people could get their mails because, you know, I mean, mail is an important piece of running a business. People got checks coming in. No, no bigger time is that important than when there's a global pandemic and people are losing their jobs. You know, you need to get paid. And so, you know, we did certain little small things like that, you know, hosting workshops, uh, you know, live on Facebook and you know, all those different things. Those were those little tiny wins that we had that we started racking up that we, you know, that we were winning on. And then I think to your point is we got to like May and June, we were now we were comfortable with, with how to operate virtually. We had at least an idea when we were going to open up. We had plans, you know, we had these procedures and all those things. Um, and so it was, a, it was a completely different world. And I think it was the team just really bonding together with a, with a cause, uh, an immediate cause uh, that, that gave us purpose. Right on. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that also, you know, we had a lot of opportunities and distractions in front of us where we had to decide, like, what should we take on? What, what does make sense? We have an opportunity to do this or this or, you know, co-working or... Um, there were a lot of people that were doing virtual schooling and we had people reach out to us seeing if we can have students come in here because they couldn't go to their classrooms. We had all kinds of things. And I think, um, you know, one thing that you did a really good job of was identifying which ones were the ones that we should focus on. And um, even at times when, you know, oftentimes that was me that, that was the one delivering it to the team but you really gave me the room, the space and grace to challenge those things. And I think that that was really important. Um, so this might get a little uncomfortable, but, you know, with me, I ask a lot of questions. You do? I do. <laughs> and I, <laughs> and I, uh, I challenge often. How is it 
working with somebody like me <laughs> that that challenges you on things because I'm, I'll tell you where this is coming from. Like I feel so grateful that I'm in a position where my CEO can come to me with this like great idea and I don't have to mask it. I don't have to like sugarcoat how I'm really feeling about it, even if, whether it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think you do a really good job of, of just, I don't know, like of listening and, and, um, and making me feel like you're like, like I'm heard. But yeah, how is that working with somebody like that? I mean, I think working with somebody like you, the thing that it has always held true, even though you do ask questions, even though you and I, and I think John can attest to this, when, when you and I are left in a room to tackle something, that room becomes very uncomfortable for anybody that's not you or me, right? And it's because you challenge me, and I think I challenge you, right? And, and, and I think that the reason why it's, it's been so effective for us is because I think that when you came in, I had these, you know, like I said, I had these ideas, but then you helped me refine what those ideas were, and you helped me identify, like, this is the mission that we're on. And once that was set and set in stone, I mean, thinking back to March of 2020, that mission, our, our why, our how, and our what has not changed at all. Uh, I mean, maybe a word or so, but that's about it in, in the, you know, nearly two years that we've been working on it. Right. And we both were bought in on that, you know, and, and because of us being bought in on it, there was no question that you could ask that I knew you didn't already put through the idea of, of that mission. Right. And so your questions were always required, not required. They were always welcomed because they were coming from the right place. I think the part that's always fun for me in, in a laughable irony kind of a way is that like, I think I have a, the, a similar knack, but that I have this like perception of, of others that when I realize, okay, they're a little <laughs> bit uncomfortable right now. So I'm going to stop asking a question. <laughs> and I, I, I know you have that as well, but I think that you realize that like asking this question is way more important than how comfortable you feel right now. <laughs> and you may not have ever said that aloud, but that's the feeling that I got. And, and even though there were a hundred times where I laid my head down in exhaustion because of the questions that we had just beaten to death, it was still always for the better. And, and I think that it showed, you know, I think back to the time when we took on the idea of doing testing here and we questioned everything. We questioned the idea of mandating it. We questioned the idea of procedures. We questioned the idea of results. We questioned the idea of everything. But once we got it all taken care of, once we were on the same page, once we realized that like, although this doesn't necessarily build a startup one, you know, building San Antonio one startup at a time, it helps our members do those things. Yep. And once we realized that, I, I mean, I make the joke, but it's relatively true that like you beat me up one night to, I, I felt like 10 PM, it was probably 7 PM. And, <laughs> and, and we left that night, right? you came back the next morning and you had a playbook all written out for how we were going to do it because we had broken that wall of, of, you know, you getting to the point of understanding what it was. And it's funny too, because I don't think you read the book at that time, but I'm reading the book that you told me to read extreme ownership right now. And in that he, he says, he gives that perfect example that you gave me then maybe you did read it then, but I don't know. But he had said like, once I knew why, once I knew what I was doing, I could take it to my team and then everybody else was behind it. And that's exactly what happened. You took it to the team. They were on board. We took it to the members. The members were on board. And we all look back at that August of last year as being a really important period of time where we turned a corner towards the positive growth of, of geekdom uh, in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, man, that's crazy. I'm just going to add something real quick. Uh, I appreciate, I appreciate both of you all like so much. Um, and on behalf of the community, thank you. Right. Cause it was a crazy year, crazy time. And I think this is a, a great opportunity to give them a peek behind the curtain as to like the processes we went through, the kind of struggle or the challenges we were facing. And, uh, I mean, we wouldn't be getting ready to celebrate 10 years without the work that we've all done together but you all kind of led us to do yeah i remember that uh that exact time i remember that exact conversation 
I remember it differently. Like I thought we were having fun, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> until until Charles went like this. Uh, yeah. I, th- I thought you were sneezing. Yeah. I, th- I thought everything was. I thought everything was good. I thought you were dabbing. Dude. Yeah, I thought, hey. yeah. I thought you were doing your moves, dude. But you know, I but I do remember that that was, yeah, that was brutal. But um, you know, it really was. And I think it. I I I think I had read that at least that portion of that book, okay. where like you know, um, I I believed so strongly that I can't. I can't expect them to believe in it if I don't believe in it. And I remember telling you, like, I remember being nervous about telling you, but I remember telling you, I don't believe in this. This is not yet, you know? And, um, and yeah, like, I think what else was crazy is before that conversation, we would come back just flip-flopped. You would, we, you would go home one night thinking, we're going to do this. We have to do this. And this is the way we're going to do it. And I would go home thinking like, dude, there's no way. And then the next day you would go home saying, yeah, there's no way. And I'd be like, dude, no, I think it's good. And, and, but I still, it was forced. I didn't, I, I didn't believe in it. And yeah, I'm, I'm super grateful that you gave me that, um, that opportunity because it did take me a little bit. I think it was more than a night. I think it was a, that was a Friday and it was a Monday Might or something. Been, yeah. yeah. The weekend. But, but yeah, that was, that was tough, but man, that was that was an awesome an awesome time. I'm so glad that that we were able to do what we did and and you know bring the the resources to the community at the time that they need it. Um, you know, speaking of mission, one time we were playing this game called Call of Duty, and <laughs> in this game, there's this this card that you can find. And they're really random. Oh they're super gosh. random. But there was this. There was this. I'm just gonna tell a quick story. There was this. Uh, this forum and, and like there's rumors that this card had come out. Super rare. But if you get this card, then you can you can go to this specific location in Call of Duty and this massive map, and you can put in put the card in there, and then it opens up. A big just, bunker. The bunker. The it loot. Opens up the loot, dude. Like. And and there's just so much. There's every gun you could ever want, every all the ammo you could ever want. There's a couple of books in there. There's all kinds of stuff. <laughs> um, and so we were so excited. I got the card, dude. I I did. And and here's the thing, y'all. I'm not very good at uh, video games, but I got the card, and I was the first one. And this is the squad you're looking at. I had the card, <laughs> and we were on a mission. And this is a mission that we believed in. Yep. We we got the card. We were inspired, let's, baby. Let's go to it. <laughs> We all believed in each other, and I did my part. I got the card, and and I remember Charles looking at me metaphorically through the game. His character, game character, was looking at me and said, "Don't die. You got to hold on to the card. We got to go all the way across the map. We're not gonna, we're not worried about winning this one. We're gonna. This is how we win. So we go we go across the map, and I made it, man." Which is hard. Like I, I, <laughs> it's hard for me to stay alive. It's hard for me to stay with the group because they are fast. We finally get over there, and I remember Charles took the wheel, much like he took the wheel at Geekdom, <laughs> and and I was so excited. I was waiting right there by the door because I knew the door was going to come up. He was going to come do the thing, <laughs> and 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 do the thing. And he did the card. You did the card, and I did the card because I was holding it. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what it was. I did the card. Yeah, and then I drove the car. And then Charles drove the car, took the wheel, just like he took the wheel at Geekdom. Yeah. And you you drove the car right into me and killed me. Which I didn't even know was possible. It, it, it wasn't. It, it wasn't possible, wasn't, which is so weird. It wasn't possible, but it does make me wonder, were we on separate missions? Damn. It makes, I've always wondered that, and I wanted to bring it up today. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, you know, I love one of the fun things about you are your storytelling, right? It's just, it's amazing. <laughs> But it's always so fun because whenever it's a story that includes me, I'm sitting here listening, trying to be as patient as I possibly can so that I can give the true story of what happened. Right. And so I'm going to give my side and then I'll and then I'll tell you what happened. So we're playing Call of Duty. Right. Uh, His name is Shep, Shep of the Trees and uh, metaphorical foe, Wolf Badger. And um, we're playing and and Shep, you know, calls out, I got a card. It's like, okay, cool. Hey, get in the car. We got to go now because we have to get over to the other side of the map. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And uh, Shep is notorious for being like everybody's over here and Shep's <laughs> over here by himself. 
And then you're just like, Hey, wh- where are you, dude? And he's like, Oh yeah, sorry, man. I was just you know, blinded by the loot. <clears throat> so we, we pick him up, drive him across the map. Um, and we get to the door. Okay. And I've, you know, I'm, I'm a nerd. At least at the time I was a really big nerd and I was watching all these videos and like how to, how to do it safely. And that there's like people, they're like little vultures. And if they, they hear one of the bunkers open, then they're going to come and they're going to get you. Right. And then you're not going to, you're not going to be able to make it out alive. And so I watched this one video where this guy took the car and he drove it into the bunker <laughs> so that it was in the bunker when they needed to get out, they just drive right out and anybody's in their way, they just run right over them. Right. And I'm like, Oh, that's freaking brilliant. I'm going to do that. Right. All their friends are alive. All their friends are alive. <laughs> yes. Because those of you who also know when you play Warzone and you like, if you're driving, you could be going as fast as you possibly can and metaphorical foes standing in the road. I, I run right into him. He can jump into the car. Nothing happens. He doesn't die. That's just how the game mechanics work. And so I start reversing the vehicle in <laughs> to be prepared to go as you're waiting by the door, jumping up and down. And, and then I, I hit you and you died. And I have never seen that uh, before that. I'd never seen it after that. Have you? No, it's just not supposed to happen. Not supposed to happen. And he died. And he was livid, like so livid, right? But the real funny part, which I'm sure he'll get to, is that we didn't wait for him. We went inside and we got all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And we left him like a like a sniper rifle. Yeah. Ocean- up oceanographer. Yeah. Or like oceanographer. <laughs> so anyway, y'all can decide what the real story is. But, but that's what happened. I, you know, I love... I love working with you. I love being a friend of yours. I love playing video games with you when I can, like when I'm when I'm not alive. Yeah, when I'm yeah when yeah, I'm not alive. For sure. But um, but this has been awesome. It's been awesome to get to know a little bit more about you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for talking about all the the trials and tribulations of being a CEO of Geekdom. Before we end the show, um, I do want to ask you if you think about. Uh, some of your moments in transition. And I don't want to call those lows because I don't think that's what they are. I think they're more so times of uncertainty. And so if you think about those, what kind of advice would you give somebody who's in a a position where they're, um, say, transitioning out of the military or moving, having a culture shock or a regional shock or a weather shock Something like that. What kind of advice would you give somebody or what kind of advice would you wish that you could give yourself? I, I think <clears throat> I think from my perspective, there's there's always help there. And I think the thing is, is like, don't take something on yourself if you don't need to. Right. And so if you're going through, um, you know, I'm thinking back to my time. Um, you know, leaving the military and, and going to school, which would have been probably my lowest of my low because I didn't, I didn't have people. There were probably resources there, but I didn't seek them. Right. But when, when I found the opportunity with Apple and how much it changed, like just go out and find something that, you know, that, that you need, whether that be a friend that you can talk to th- throughout those periods of time, whether that be a, um, a hobby that you could do. I picked up woodworking at the time. I love doing woodworking. And, and like, those are things that you can do that help you get through those periods of time um, and, and help you transition into the new thing. And the other thing too, is like, if you're like, I, I think about my time when I stepped in uh, to Geekdom, when I was just a business development manager before I, I had the opportunity to step up to CEO, I did a lot of reading. I mean, like audiobooks podcasts about the world that I was entering into, like take that opportunity to learn what you're doing as well. And I think back to the me who joined, uh, who, who went to UTSA at the time, I probably wish I would have told him like, Hey, like learn more about what you're trying to, to learn about rather than, you know, just like sulk. But that's what I did when I went to Apple. I learned about everything I needed to do there about how to, you know, how to fix issues, how to, um, you know, work with businesses. And that's what I did when I came here and, and I've never looked back since. So I think, I think, learn number one number two find others that are in the similar situation or that you can lean on in those situations so that you can kind of build together uh, so you're not by yourself so those are right my advice that's 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 a lot of advice that a lot of geekdom members can take I yeah mean, hopefully we're fostering that kind of environment and collaboration here well mr charles wooden it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure talking to you the man the myth the legend the man who brought Detroit style pizza into my <laughs> life. The man who Jets, baby. has has had the one first and only 
friendly fire kill in <laughs> Call of Duty <laughs> Warzone yeah. history. And and also there was one other I had one other thing. Oh, and also the man who introduced Michigan beachfront property to my <laughs> life. Dude, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. If you would, Mr. JRG, take us home, sir. Alrighty, thank you everybody for listening to the Geekdom Underground podcast. Really quick before we end, Charles, tell us a little bit about the Impact Report. Yeah, so uh, I did want to mention, those of you who don't know, uh, we are hitting our 10 years uh, this October. So 10 years of operation, Geekdom's been around, and a lot of things have happened in that 10 years. Right now, we're trying to get all the information, all the data points that we can to document the change in the ecosystem that has happened in the last 10 years. So if you... Uh, are connected to a company or you yourself have seen something change, we would love to hear from you. Uh, we have our impact report, so you should be receiving an email. It should be in your inbox already. You can go to our uh, network. You can find it, uh, but fill out the survey. It's really helpful for us to understand what's happened in the past 10 years. Uh, and because right now we're at a very important period of time, um, one of those books that I read was a book called uh, How to Build a Startup uh, Community, right? And it had said that building an ecosystem for startups is a 20-year process. So we're halfway through. And so the information that we have here will dictate what our plans are and how we affect for the next 10 years. So please do your part. Uh, you know, uh, Submit some information via that survey and, and help us uh, understand uh, what impact you've had and what impact Geekdom's had in the past 10 years. Thanks. Bada bing, bada boom. Thank you, everybody. We'll see y'all next week. Thanks for tuning in. Take it easy, y'all.